0: Darlings, before we get to this week's show, I'd like to invite you to come see me live. That's right. The Luminaries will be posting up once a month at Housing Works Bookstore Cafe in Soho. Heard of it? And our very first edition is going to be a banger. Thursday, June 6th at 7 p.m., I'm interviewing the supreme stunt queens of comedy, Sydney Washington and Marie Faustin. There's going to be a full bar, hot people, and a little dance party, courtesy of DJ Swoon. It's $8, and I want to see looks. Come wearing culottes. See you there, moi. They're all here. The divas, princes, and living legends you should be obsessed with. Sitting down with me. I'm David Goldberg. These are The Luminaries. I'm joined by the diva Charlene, who many consider to be the high priestess of Brooklyn drag. Like many fortunate queers, I know Charlene from her lip syncs, her brunches, and formally of her legendary house parties. But in my time as a go-go dancer, I was privileged to share the stage with her, and I've never had to pound it harder to keep up with anybody. Charlene is an OG of the annual Bushwig Drag Festival and is featured in the upcoming documentary Wig, which covers the 2018 Wigstock Drag Festival. Before *Wig* premieres on HBO on June 18th, we spoke about the genesis of Charlene and her star arrival. Charlene, welcome. Hi. Hi, my fellow Taurus goddess. Honey, happy birthday. Thank you. We are indeed recording on my birthday. I am wearing my bitch Midtown Manhattan helmet Lang, or is it Helmet Newton, power suit. One's a photographer. Helmut Lang. Helmut Lang Helmet, Helmet Helmet Helmet
1: is, is a designer.
0: And Newton's a pho- the photographer. Yes. And they are both, I assume, part of the master race. Anyways, um, we are hot off a big weekend for Charlene. You know,
1: speaking of Tauruses, yes. who else I recently learned Oh, shares. yeah, this is... Um, Cher, sure. I was recently shared does her share. Yes, is a Taurus. But sure. we all knew that. Um, I was recently hanging out with Justin Vivian Bond, um, Hello. who saw me perform and said, all that stomping, I knew she must be a Taurus. Because she is also, and I was like, okay, so I didn't know, I I didn't know that uh, stomping, I was like, I didn't know that stomping was a Taurian attribute. Oh, is that because of the bulls, like, tilling the fields? I don't know. I just, I just, um, I like, you're the star witch between the two of us. It is true. Um, I uh, only, my only interaction with astrology is like an egotistical lens into my own life. So I'm like... Of course, I'm a Taurus because I'm th- I'm like that bitch who's like uh, uses astrology um, only in like a way to talk about myself, even though I don't know what I'm saying.
0: Okay, so look, let's get into the Taurus thing really quickly because Charlene cannot be humble about this. Charlene actually is in the Taurus pantheon. Taurus is, which Justin Vivian Bond explained <laughs> to me, uh, one of our power centers is the throat. So we have some of the greatest singers and kind of women with voices so we have oh, Cher wish. Barbara Streisand Adele um Ella Fitzgerald then we have the Kate Blanchett um Tina Fey Lena Dunham then we have Christine Baranski um Amanda Duarte oh,
1: Christine Baranski I know that it's so, so good help.
0: Grace Jones so we have just the I best mean, of course women. I want
1: of course I want to imagine myself with some sort of kindred Yeah. To these women, of course. I think Taurus
0: is a a major diva sign. Yeah. And Taurus is, like, Barbara and Cher are are still around. Like, we don't have as many tragic divas. Our Mm. our divas just, like, become rich and lazy and problematic, but they never die. You don't consider
1: Adele to be a tragic diva?
0: No, you're right. You're right. I guess Adele is never I don't think Adele's going to burn out like a Gemini diva. Adele isn't going to be like Whitney Houston or even like Naomi Campbell or Azalea Banks or something Lana I Del Rey. consider
1: to be really Tarian about Adele is that she like records while she's sitting down. I'm obsessed. Like us. Like yeah. all these singers who were like focused with the headphones on and like standing up and into the microphone and she's kind of just like in yeah. a leather chair smoking a cigarette.
0: Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, Barbara stopped touring and performing for like 27 years, and she was like, "I "I got scared," and it's like, "Okay, but but they can do that.
1: That's very Torian too. It's like, whatever. I have the money." It's definitely my excuse for sitting in bed and smoking pot all day. Oh yeah, I my eating one pint of ice cream. My therapist says
0: that I'm fatigued, which has given me so much permission because I've been taking. Yeah, I've just been if I need a nap.
1: There's Are you nothing... new to therapy?
0: No, but I'm new to not having, like, a corporate desk-hell pig pen job.
1: Which begets needing a therapist, do you think?
0: Yes, which but when I had it, I had insurance so I could go to therapy twice a week. Now oh. I'm going down to once a week and paying. I mean, the whole thing is so contradictory because, really? yeah, I really could use her now. I, my birthday was quite harrowing. Yeah, but...
1: totally. Those who need the therapist find it hard to get one. I mean, I've just, like... I personally have so much therapy trauma in my past oh. like I look I'm a I'm a, um, I'm a conversion therapy survivor uh, personally Wow um so the, I'm like really averse to like it and then I, and then I talk myself into this whole like basically I consider myself and I know this is like you know, I know this is me getting in my own way, but I consider myself sometimes to be, like, too big of a challenge for a therapist. I'm like, think of all of the right. things that this therapist has to be, like, well-versed in that so few people are. Like, not only, like, tranny shit, sex right. worker shit, Um, you know, I'm like, not going to be judgmental about all the drugs I sometimes do, like, um, polyamory-friendly, like, all of these yeah. things that I found myself encountering that I'm like, no one who I can sit down with who is being paid to listen to me is going to understand what I'm talking about.
0: I feel like I've made my therapist better, though, because anytime I've thrown her a curveball, she'll, like, do her homework, and it really titillates me. Because I've had a few times where she's been, like... I'm getting certified in hypnosis, and I'm like, I know you're doing this for me. Like, I know that I'm the star patient. So ideally, I'm there's someone that. out there where you would be like, Hypnotized the Charlene like project, totally. where they're like, I need to be taking books out for Charlene, like, I need to be training up for her. But yeah, I, there is no better feeling, I feel very lucky, when I throw one of those fucking curveballs at her, and I'm like, Can oh, she knows. Can you give example? When the Holocaust is so easy, I'm not even going to use that, but like, you know, Terms like emotional incest or attachment disorder, when they come up, she has navigated it very well, which has shocked me. Mm. But yeah. No, I, I think you would be good for that, but I didn't know about the conversion therapy thing. How old were we you when that this happened?
1: Down if I'm wasting time.
0: You're not. And, okay. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs>
1: Sorry. Impossible. What, are you talking about T- Tara's shit or something else? The no. Th- the, the, the film? Actually, I kind of want to ask in terms of the
0: conversion therapy thing. Tonight. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So... What about it? <laughs> Well, where where I want to kind of start is you just had a, we're recording May six. You just had a really big uh, weekend because WIG, the documentary oh, sorry. for HBO that you're in, uh, just had its premiere at Tribeca. Yes. And anyone who is following Charlene on Instagram saw her look fucking fierce at the premiere, along with Tyler Ashley
1: mm-hmm. and other family members. And, and other family members. Um. Yeah, I was wearing Diego Montoya. Um, at long last in my drag career, I have witnessed the beautiful things that he puts on all of these drag queens, and I thought that the circumstance called for it.
0: So what I kind of want to ask you, and this is such a sick thing to... for for Maybe just because I just had my birthday party on Friday, and it was really beautiful. It was great. It was another big moment. But I am not used to that sort of good attention and positive attention and love and support. Me either. I'm, I'm like a shelter dog, too. <laughs> yeah, And my trauma response is to just, like, disassociate. I don't know what's going on. I reject this. And I'm just curious, like, you're at this moment where you're getting all this really incredible attention, and I'm curious what it's like for you. Like, is Uh it a shock? Is it weird? Are you like, of course, I've been waiting for this? (laughs) Like, what? yeah, what is that like for you? I
1: mean, all things are true. Um, All things are true. Um, I mean, so this, this movie, Wig... Um, that I've been working on the past year um, is, like, uh, for me, a story of friendship with the filmmaker Chris, um, who is part of my community and my chosen family, um, and who I found um, through really, uh, like, magical acts of radical community in my life that all happened um, as a snowball effect from me coming out, starting drag in the first place. So, yeah, there is some sense... Um, of uh, feeling like it is right and it is placed in, and it makes perfect sense um, in terms of, like, it, it being a dream come true moment, you know? Like, I had just had a red carpet moment, like a real... I just did a real red carpet. Yeah. Um, so, of course, like, the version of me that was, like behind my locked bedroom door after watching the Oscars, like praying for moments like that is vindicated in a very real way. (laughs) But at the same time, um, I feel like it is insular in a way as well, because this is a queer story. um, And um, because within queerness, I feel very much like I have already had minor bouts of immense exposure mm. to the queer community at large on a national scale, with things like Bushwig, with just being a prominent member in the drag community, which is actually a lot more intimate than I was expecting going into it. Okay. Um, and perhaps that's me shrinking it just because I found my success in it, but um, I was just marveling I I, the moment at the premiere was not it wasn't even the red carpet for me or watching the film because I had seen the film already. But after the film premiered, we did a drag show afterwards, Mm -hmm. me and a few of the girls who were featured in the movie. And I closed that show and it was Flotilla de Barge, Willem, Alaska um and Kevin Aviance Ooh. and and my girlfriend Pantheon. Bobby also yeah like basically these people who I either had revered as um titans like Kevin Aviance yeah. who were so far before my time that I w- that were they were completely inaccessible to me or idols of mine from RuPaul's Drag Race when I was starting drag around right. the time of season four of RuPaul's Drag Race. I totally idolize Willem in Alaska, you know, and I find myself backstage with them after this movie premieres and they had just seen the movie for the first time and realized how prominent a character I am and how much of my voice is used in the in the ethos of this film and um they they each uh acknowledged and recognized that within me backstage and and this was right before they were to leave me to go on stage before I ever did so it was this it was um you know it was uh immensely immensely surreal for right. that for that reason like um just like that I even have access to call these people colleagues in the first place um but also to be like this this celebrated person of a body of work that we're all like you know someone who's immensely celebrated in a body of work that we're all very proud of yeah um, it's 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 truly unreal and I really do owe it all to Chris the director of the film um, who uh, had me in mind starting it. Um, when HBO approached him about it in the first place. So, um, yeah, it's a story, like, you know, it's for me personally, the the story itself is a story about underground drag in New York, past and present. Um, The uh, the story of the film for me is like a story of family and community. Um, So it feels really right and really surreal at the same time because both of those things are true. (laughs) So...
0: when you said Drag Race, I thought of something two or three weeks ago um, on a much-beloved runway challenge. Brooklyn Heights came out. Um, this is when she had an, an afro. She does a big reveal. She comes out in this kind of wrestler power bitch bikini with boots mm-hmm. and long blonde hair. And afterwards, she and Evie oddly had kind of a legendary face-off to Demi Lovato. Anyone who has seen Charlene when they watched that episode blinked a few times and said she's fucking doing Charlene. <laughs> there were memes totally. the next day about the Charlene effect. So isn't that crazy? It's not crazy. I w- I knew this was going to happen, and I'm I'm now wondering like, what are you observing?
1: Um, I have my thoughts about this. Okay, I did. I received several. I uh, everyone saw the episode before I did, so I got the texts. Before I actually saw it, yeah, but I wasn't surprised, honestly, because barring that runway, Brooklyn Heights and I just look alike yeah. um, and um and any and and you know, I can say that as myself because I remember a version of me before I had my skull um smoothed down surgically. To look more not like that, mm. but Brooklyn Heights' facial structure, she's a gorgeous woman. Her facial structure is really um, um, masculine, which is kind of like the main difference between our appearances. But the thing about drag makeup is that <laughs> it like it feminizes yeah. all of those masculine features. So the feminized version of Brooklyn Heights with makeup on looks like me. Actually it actually like it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. But but that but that runway specifically, what I will say is Brooklyn Heights, she was wearing human hair that night. Oh so when she was whipping that hair It's like you it looks like me because I don't wear wigs. like drag queens do. And so we're conditioned from that show to seeing drag queens coming out with hair that you could tap and it would make a sound, you know? Like it's plastic hair that's been shellacked with hairspray. And it doesn't move gorgeously, even if it's long and looks like long, gorgeous, like cartoon hair, it doesn't move like human hair does, but Brooklyn was wearing human hair that night, so when she whipped her head to the side, it does the thing that my hair does, which has kind of become a signature of mine, because drag queens don't wear human hair, and I'm I'm a drag queen who, like, I don't wear human hair, but I have, I, like, like, just don't wear hair anymore. But your Um,
0: hairography
1: is... Essential, your fan. It's my thing, girl. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is when I was starting drag, and I was mm-hmm. and I was really desiring the kind of attention that being on RuPaul's Drag Race would give me. Um, I, I, I was kind of and, and a lot of drag queens when they're starting out, if that's their goal, they intuit this that they need to have some sort of like diversity to their look, yeah, or like they're going to be challenged by Michelle Visage to like do something different, and so I would. Um be starting dragon. I'd be like, all right, I needed variety of looks. I need a, like a bunch of different styles of hair and um I would go to the wig store looking for a gorgeous new wig and um I would come out with a long curly brown wig with light brown highlights. And it would be this gorgeous, like, looking, like, hair that would make me feel like a beautiful woman for, like, a few wears, and then I would have to go get another one. I'd be like, yeah. get something blonde this time. Or, like, you know, try a bang or something. But it would always be the same. I would always leave with long, curly brown hair. And I was like, I guess I can just stop getting haircuts and save a bunch of money Yeah, it that is, way. It also, <laughs>
0: I, I, it's fascinating to hear this because... What has made, one of the things that's made you so legendary is that, you know, Brooklyn drag is known as being extremely postmodern, deconstructionist. It's about queens who Mm -hmm. editorialize their looks and their songs, which we love that. Yeah. You stand out. I'm not saying that one form is better than the other. You stand out because it's kind of pure, real, you, the fan, the boots, Shania Twain. Yeah. So, Hearing about you like experimenting with that level of artifice, artifice is almost disturbing to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a when you're starting out, and any drag queen has to take a while to find their voice. Um, but it really was, it will really was the trans thing that made me really branch out and realize that I could do things my own way, mm-hmm. um, because it made me give up on my hopes of being on that show, which I think is really the source of a lot of the squelching of creativity in the drag community in the first place. So yeah, it disturbs me too to think about a time when I was like trying to base my look off of what would make someone else happier, make me more marketable. Um, But it's an impulse that a lot of drag queens fall into because we all want success and that's what drag queens think that success is.
0: And now, I mean, I'm talking... I what I love about you is you have toured the world with Bushwig which now has set up kind of vassal kingdoms yeah. in Berlin, LA, Mexico City, um, and beyond. So I'm just curious about what you're seeing in terms of of what global drag can be and I understand uh-huh. that DragCon is this bigger monolith, but so the fuck is Bushwig? And I and now you're in wig and I'm just I'm curious what you're seeing as our our possibilities for more diversity in that in the global cash-making drag galaxy?
1: Yeah. Um, I, th- I really think that... Um, it, it, I'm really beginning to believe that like the lifeblood of authentic drag really is youth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when you involve too much money in it, it's kind of when it loses yeah. a lot of its um, authenticity for me. So what I'm seeing is that as young people get more and more free in terms of their like gender expression their bodies and their presentations the drag becomes more interesting and diverse mm-hmm. um and that's something that i saw a lot in europe and i see it a lot in new orleans we did a bushwick there but i'm um I am becoming a New Orleans snowbird and wintering away from Looks New sense. York. Um, it really is everything. I really love um, spending time there in the community down there. But the drag down there is so compelling, and something that I love about that city is that they kind of as an the city has this spirit of kind of um, having having given up on this American ideal of success and ex- and wealth and has a completely different sense of abundance, Mm -hmm. New Orleans really values creativity and not, like, profit as much. It also really values, like, getting fucked up, and it, like, has its problems, and it's ultimately, like, um, you know, a swamp city that's underneath sea level. So there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, I only bring it up to say that, like, a lot of the drag that you see coming out of there is so carefree for that reason, Mm -hmm. because they haven't, like, really... Quantified it in the way that DragCon likes to do, right. um, and so you see, for instance, like one of my um, one of my biggest drag inspirations right now um, lives in New Orleans um, and is actually her name is Vis Queen. You can find her online. She is um, I don't know what 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 we're preferring to call them nowadays. She's a a bio queen. Um, a hyper queen, I guess, is something I've seen online to okay. describe um a uh femme presenting drag performers okay. um she's a she's like what would have been known in a pre internet drag world as a faux queen okay. um and um you will never hear her mention it. Um, she like she like lets her drag speak for herself in this way that is like so radical and hardcore for me and inspirational to me that there is none of the like um of the zoomed out like politicizing of it and letting right. the drag speak for it and politicize itself. Like I think is um I don't really know how I got off in this tangent. I'm talking no. about New Orleans and um like what I see um happening that I like in drag is that um, it's attracting a lot of different kinds of people. Like, the visibility of drag is attracting a lot of different kinds of people. And while only one type of bitch is going to find herself on TV, um, to this, like, pretty much to this day, I guess that, like, I'm kind of an uh, um, exception to that rule with this documentary coming out. But I just mean, like, the radical forms of drag are not ever going to be on TV. And that's what I think, like, is the key to its, like it to it thriving. It's like, it still is underground and it's going to be.
0: But there is something, I I guess Bushwig feels like this magical kind of compromise because you can have, it's just such a special day every year. It's every September, it's kind of like a little gay holiday and it feels like a nice way where you can have the underground performers being showcased while it's part of something that's bigger and only going to get bigger, but... Uh, anyways, I really enjoy it. yeah, I think Louisiana purchases from New Orleans as well. We're I only
1: big that. because everybody loves drag. Like yeah. the thing about it that I love about Bushwig and and which is what I say every time press time comes around. Yeah. And and we're almost we're at the same time as uh, we're around the same time as DragCon and um, now we're around the same time as Wigstock too. Um but the thing about Bushwig is that we or or, Ch- or Chata and Babes, rather, built this audience from the ground up, and the audience is pretty much all still people who would have gone to Secret Project Robot if they knew about right. it then. Right. Like, it's all gay people who love drag. It's all, like, Rocky Horror freaks yeah. and, like, you know, disenfranchised, um, uh, like, uh, you know, um, nerdy, draggy... Well, it's like, people can't world. really
0: celebrate Pride much anymore. I mean, I just... I don't... Pride, for me, it's great because I mm-hmm. can make money, but I don't... There's not really a Pride party I'm looking forward to at World Pride New York right now. Right. So Bushwig is that... And same with... Ha- like, I don't care about Halloween. Bushwig is kind of that only moment we have, basically. Um, so yeah, I... It's yeah, a,
1: it's an immense celebration of the Brooklyn community. It is Brooklyn Pride, in my mind, Bushwig. Yeah. Is, yeah.
0: So I guess I kind of wanted to go back because I'm just curious about <clears throat> you coming out um, as queer, you coming out as a drag queen, mm-hmm. as a drag artist, and you coming out as trans. Like, was there... And even the conversion therapy, like, was... At that point, were you trans? At that point, did you know Mm -hmm. you wanted... Like, when did you know you wanted to be a performer? I'm kind of interested. When did you come out as Charlene? Right. When did you come out as gay? When did you come out as a performer?
1: It's an interesting question, and there are many truths, um, because... On a level, I've always been Charlene, and I guess any trans person who comes out later in life will tell you this. Like, my name was given to me by my parents because it's a feminization of the name that I was given by them as a means of discouraging me from acting effeminate. So every time, every time I grew up hearing that name mentioned, like, you know, the times that you hear your name in the wild, I'm sure you go through it a lot, being named David. Yes. You're like, oh, I'm David. Whenever I would hear Charlene, I would know that that was me. On some level, it's like a name that I was called as a very young child. Um, And uh, I was born and raised in an isolated environment um, that was, um, to say the least, not the kind of place that someone like me can be themselves. (laughs) Um, And I, I somewhat knew in the back of my mind that the price of my truth would be that life that I knew. Mm-hmm. And it was a matter of the scales tipping between me caring about losing it or not, and knowing that I could stand on my own two feet because I knew that the price of my truth would mean having to live alone, basically, or at least without the my family and the world that I grew up knowing, right. um, because I was raised in an in an insular community in Alabama. Um, and, like, that's really, like, all the detail you really need. When I say conversion therapy, I meant that my therapist as a child was kind of operating on my parents' agenda. I wasn't, like, sent away to a no, camp. No, but still. Um, but um, I was definitely – there was an um, obvious effort throughout my childhood to make sure I did not turn into a faggot. <laughs> definitely. Um and, um, so, you know, um, and I, and I talk about this a bit in the film, uh, also. So I, so I'll let, I'll let your audience go and watch it and not have to bore them too much with this, but that moment for me came when I was almost 22, the moment that I knew that I could, and this was all subconscious, that I could stand on my own two feet was when I was 22 and I was already watching RuPaul's Drag Race in the wow. closet. I was already wearing heels. You know, right. like they were hidden under my bed, but all of my friends knew that I had this compulsion, and like I thought it was fierce, and I was basically holding back because I was, as you may know, um, or or like you may not know, I was raised, um, in the church. Which was a really, which remains a really good hiding place for gay people, right. for closeted gay people. So my friends basically had to buy my shit, even though they knew I was like walking around wearing heels, because that was just the way that we had all been conditioned to believe. So, um, you know, I was unhappy. I was incredibly unhappy and incredibly anxious. And, um, I never really got suicidal like so many right. closeted people do, um, but I lost my will to live and I lost my fire to life. And um, I also like fell in love in unrecorded situation after unrecorded situation with other closeted or um, unrealized um, people, beautiful boys. And um, I knew that I wanted to be happy and that I didn't care what I lost. So um, I started with coming out about my sexuality because that was really all the that I knew how to articulate at the time. This was, must be 2011. Um, And so, but the seed for me to start doing drag was Mm. definitely already planted before I ever came forward with that. Like I was definitely going to do that. In fact, one of the things when I was still connected to my parents, one of my uh, mother's requests of me, she requested one, that I'd be the man in the relationship if I was gonna be gay. Um, which I think essentially um, was her requesting for me to be a top (laughs) Uh, (laughs) or like a man um, in the first place, which I think she must associate one with the other. And, um, also, that I wouldn't do drag. So I was like, "This, I'm going to bring nothing but disappointment to this woman. Um, and so, um, basically, losing my entire life gave me the freedom to experiment and become a crazier and crazier bitch. So, um, not only did I start doing drag and start having sex and started basically indulging in all of the things that I had been desiring that I thought maybe would bring me happiness, I got to like basically... Trial and error, and figure out for myself what was going to result in happiness for me or not, and this is what I ended up with. So I guess okay. I'm
0: just curious, be, and and say as much as you want about this. I know that you have um, a gay sibling who lives in New York. I do, and and he's younger. Yes. So I'm curious when you watch, cause I always have this with younger gays and, and I'm so curious to have a sibling when you watch their mm-hmm. process and their arrival in their city and then make maybe the same mistakes or not make the same mistakes and be spared those mistakes. I'm just curious what that's like for you. And I don't mean that in like an to age. To have a
1: gay sibling.
0: In New York.
1: In yeah. Your I've world. learned so, so much. Yeah. from that, And honestly, um, it, it, my relationship with my younger brother feels to me um, very adult because growing up we were both closeted, mm. and there was immense tension between us because of that. Right. The ability to clock each other, realize that we were hiding, and real and to be able to see in each other the pressure cook the 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 burning from the pressure cooking that we were experiencing. It didn't yield an immense closeness for us, um, (laughs) to say the least. And then there was a time, it was about a four-year period between my coming out and his also. So he pretty much had to be a part of the disconnection that I experienced when I came out. And he entered the scene when he texted me and said, by the way, I came out and I'm moving to New York. So that was really my brother's entrance into my life. I was... Um, very much fully Charlene by that time. Yeah, you
0: had to kind of go off and rebirth yourself. Yes, and then he had to, basically, the new him and the new you could maybe get to know each other. Yeah,
1: and the new me um was a lot <laughs> for yeah. him um because um and and he and there's it this dynamic exists within any sibling relationship where there's a four year difference, um, there is um. There is a lot of um, me preaching and teaching right. to him, and um, and and we also a very big part of our identities or like life experience was not spoken to for our upbringing. So um, in that way, he and I are both. Um, we share a lot of trauma. <laughs> right, he and I, um, and that's something that has brought us very close together. Um, and it, but in but some it ways, also yep. presents us with the same challenges in adulthood. Right. And um, I'm really, really thankful to have him to go through all of those with now. Um, but I'm four years older than him. I'm also... Um more than four years into a career in the arts than him, and that's right. something that he desires as well. And I'm four more years into adulthood as him, and I'm four more years into life in New York as him. Right. And so um, I'm sort of relentless with him and hard on him because I see so much of like, he just turned 26. So I'm like, if I place myself back at 26, I'm like, yeah, he's like, you know, he's doing fine. Definitely. Um, but I'm just like, uh, trying to, uh, and, and a lot of this is, um, my own mommy issues coming. I'm the oldest child. I'm the one with the most mommy issues. So I'm like imposing all of them on him too. So it gets messy.
0: Something disturbing that happens with me when I meet younger people, like either younger comedians or younger people in in the queer scene in New York is like, I assume that they're as fucked up as I was at their age. mm -hmm. And then I realize often that they like have a lot of shit figured out and maybe like nine didn't affect them in the same way or whatever the yeah, fuck totally. like matrix of trauma that I went through, like didn't sizzle them in the same way. So then I'll meet someone who's 23 and I'll, I'll start talking down to them and I'm like, Oh wait, no, you actually are like hot and have it together. And I have to go sit back with my mommy issues and be like, right. Oh, they're fine. You were the one who was fucked up at that age. And you just feel all totally. this grief about that.
1: Totally. Um, yeah. So the fact that he and I are both from the same family within the same community in Alabama, um, makes me a little more able to like speak to him as though I know what I'm talking about. Right. Um, but, yeah, I noticed that with younger queer kids, too. And I get a little curmudgeon about it, too, honestly, like to be nostalgic. And, and, and this is like um, something that I grapple with a lot, like being nostalgic for a time. Like when I have drag queens friends, whose mom, like, gives them makeup brushes for Christmas or whatever. And I'm always like, what happened to the days when faggots had the blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's just my story. And it connects me to the gay ancestry. And I'm lucky for that, like, that I share something with so many of the, so a lot more of the older generation. But, like, you know, For like, do I think that um, the queer community is being ruined by loving and supporting families? (laughs) Like, no. As long as they're weird, like, yeah.
0: For me, you know, when when I think about the kind of royal pantheon which you fit in, I see you as the warrior queen. You're kind of in the Xena camp, and unfortunately, it behooves you that you've had to go through a lot more. But that's kind of uh, why you're so liberating for many of us.
1: It makes a more compelling drag. It makes me a more compelling drag queen. I agree, and it makes drag that I relate to. Drag that I relate to is drag that is drag of overcoming, um, because, like, gay people are warriors, like, you know, we're not, we're not on this earth to, like, procreate and, like, continue the race. It's, like, kind of like, um, you know, the masculinity that's infected heterosexuality is kind of this, like, um imperial the the imperialism yeah. of humanity in the first place that's not what gay people are doing we're creating like art and um experiences and reflection and like beauty in the world like that's like th- those are the seeds that we plant yeah. um and um i think that that like makes for a much more beautiful like expression of art that's like that's like why drag is like such a radical art form that that like gets so much done and says so much, like what are we doing? Ultimately dressing up and lip syncing? Like yes, it's not something that they're gonna put in the Guggenheim really anytime soon. Your
0: fan is going in that in this fucking Smithsonian.
1: Oh my uh Lasco, is that what you're talking about?
0: Yes. Charlene is known for lugging around <laughs> this goddamn Lasco fan, but let me tell you, it works. The hairography goes to a new level. It is like a Beyonce level thing, but that thing has to be trademarked and you know made into a national landmark or something.
1: I feel about that fan the way that like um you feel about like toys. It's like a it, it's like such a like it, that Lasco for me. The, first of all, like. The specid this is a Tarian thing, I think. Me and this Lasco is very Tarian because the Lasco that I got is a model that you can't get at Home Depot or Lowe's. It's like (laughs) a it's a more powerful than the readily available Laskos. And these fans are for drying paint on the wall or for drying floors. Yeah. Um so they're creating it's not a blade fan, like a like a wishing, like trying to keep you cool fan. It's like a huge blast of air from a cyclone, from a rotary cyclone. And so it gives you that Beyonce effect. I aim the air actually at my chest or my solar plexus and, um, the wind, that's how I know the wind is going to bounce off of my body and create that effect, that Beyonce effect in my hair. Whereas if you just get in front of an airstream, it's not, it's going to like blow your hair back, but not like that. Outward sort of like, yeah, sort of like Angel Gabriel descending into the physical realm, sort of like effect only comes from a really powerful jet stream that's pointed in a really specific direction. So It was like, it required a lot of rehearsal, and I feel like that, it's a machine, obviously, but I feel like it's become such an extension of my body in the way that you feel about something you really fucking wanted for Christmas growing up, and, like, may or may not have ever gotten, like, I never gotten that shit, because all I wanted was, like, high heels, you know, growing up, um... But, like, that feeling of, like, this object (laughs) that someone else made, like, this object that, that, like, I got and fits me so perfectly. Like, that's why I take that thing around with me everywhere I go is because it's, like, the only way to get the perfect wind. And now I feel like I can't perform properly without it. But
0: if that's all you need, (laughs) it's not like you do any fucking PowerPoints. There's no reveals. There's no anything. It's you, the song, and that fan. And if that's it, I guess I'm curious... You're so present when you perform and I'm, I want to know from, was it always that way or were there any obstacles you had to kind of deal with so that you could really inhabit and be fully fucking there on stage? Because I think that's the rarest thing about you. You actually are with us. That's why you're, you're beloved. But, and I know that that's not necessarily something that you can just like have. It's something you have to kind of work towards. I'm just curious how you, if you got that and I'm happy to rephrase that, of course.
1: Um I think it has to do with the comfort with being on stage and in front of people in the first place and I guess that my ability um if I see myself having any like unique ability it's that the way that it happens in my head is the way that people see it fuck Um so um yeah it's like I I guess that that's the like the way that I see it resonating with people but I think that I'm only able to do that because I've had the practice of being in front of people and performing for as long as I have. And um, and I've, I've kind of, like, baptized myself with fire in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, the nudity thing was a really big um, milestone for me as a performer because it's sort of like the ultimate fear. Like, you have nightmares yeah. about being naked in front of thousands of people yeah. um, in your youth. And, you know, that's something... If I can say anything in my life, I can say that I've faced my greatest fear in that way. Um, And so suddenly, you know, doing bar shows or doing um, naked shows for fewer than 5,000 people become like it's sort of like gets down to scale. And I can sort of like be present in a room rather than like worried about what people are going to think or whatever, because I've been doing this for a while. And so um, I think that it's like an obsessive listening, obsessive relationship with music and the way the fact that it's always happening in my head, too. Like I don't listen to music without conceptualizing performing it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a song that I feel I like could pop off on stage, I don't listen to it. You know, yep. that's why a lot of the... Uh, my Girlfriend Trash, Tyler Ashley, who I do my brunch with, I uh, do a monthly brunch at Bazaar Bar. Which is demented. It is. Um, we do a non-stop marathon drag brunch. Truly. She and I, um, from 1 to about 5 p.m., one Saturday out of the month, because that's all we can physically handle. It's an handle. absolute decimation, yeah. And one of the things that she remarks about me is that I seem to know every song in existence ever. <laughs> and that it, while that's not true, I do know every song that I've ever liked. Yeah. Because I didn't stop listening to it until I had every word memorized and I already knew what I would do if I was ever performing
0: that it. That bitch pulled out a song from the Aqua album,
1: Aquarium, yeah. and
0: you could hang. It, was, it yeah. was mind-blowing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um it and, and that's the thing. That's what makes a that's what makes a really resonant drag show also, is if you can hit those nostalgia points for an audience. It really takes knowing your audience because at brunch, what we have is, um, at least with the, with the scope of Brooklyn right now, if I go to the Rosemont, I know that I'm not going to get away with performing aqua, no. you know? Um, yes. At brunch, we have a crowd who's pretty much our age, like people who are either in their late 20s, early 30s, or above, Right. who have the means to sit down for a nice brunch and tip us for three hours straight. So I know that like and and also, like we build that vibe really slowly, so by the time it comes time in that brunch for us to do aqua, we know perfectly whether it's gonna pop off or not because of how they reacted to what came before her, you know, and so, um, yeah, they're like she and I both consider ourselves repertoire queens for that reason, but um, the power we've we've harnessed the power of drag in a way that like. There is a lot of really, really great drag music out there that I've been discovering in my performance in the last few years that is untapped by drag queens Incredible. because men sing it. Like, who would have thunk? There's this faggoty, <laughs> fat... There's this whole realm of gay-ass music sung by straight men who yeah. are actually, like, low-key, like, women, which is something that I think I'm able to bring out of songs like that. These bombastic, like, butt-rock songs, like this rock, radio rock that I've been performing in the past few years is like, these men are wailing emotionally into the microphone, like singing at the top of their lungs. You can see them making these crazy faces when they're recording this music. And drag queens don't tap into it because they think that their audience only wants to see Britney Spears. But in a season 11 and onward world, like we're just, I think that like the gay audience is just weary of seeing the same shit over and over again. And there's a time and place for Britney. I'm doing a Kelly Clarkson night at Metropolitan in a few nights. Um, like, you know, like I pull out all of the classics and of course share. Like I, I, um, we'll pull out share. Yeah, and I mean, the...
0: you, listen, you doing the Cure by Lady Gaga is almost like expected <laughs> yeah. for some of us. Yeah. But yeah, no, uh, you and Tyler did a country medley, and you did like Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy, which it, I mean, it's so campy. That was and her. none of us had eat, but 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 <laughs> right. What what,
1: what did, which one did you do? I'm trying to remember. So the country suite was. Um. So actually, the way that that happened, and this is the great thing about brunch, is the way that it so naturally happens because, um, we had been doing Lady Gaga before that. Right. We were doing Lady Gaga, and Tyler did Poker Face, which made me think of The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. Okay, you got to know go. when to oh. hold them and know when to fold them, which actually makes a great song for drag brunch because it has this kind of like a wassailing beat where it makes people want to like you know, beat the tables in time. And so it creates a great atmosphere for brunch. So I did Kenny Rogers, the gambler, and that made us pull out the cowboy hats and start doing country songs. So that's when she did Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy. And then I did The Devil Went Down to Georgia, one of my favorite, because like, you know, I'm from Alabama. I I'm love from Texas.
0: You know, I had never even made the association. I'm, I'm from Texas. Mm-hmm. I never even think about it because I kind of like banished it away when I left Texas. But then I'm like this is the faggiest thing I've ever heard. I'm having all these memories of me at the rodeo, which is so gay. Save a horse. These men in these stupid outfits that they're like, this bizarro John Wayne masculinity. So then when you were doing those three and when you were doing Kenny Rogers... Uh, Lou, my friend Louie and I were both, who's also from Texas, we were both kind of stunned. And it was like, oh, yeah, of course. And I've seen you do Evanescence before. And it's like, Evanescence, of course, it was her song. They brought in these men to make it more like mask appealing. And now it's even gayer. So it, it's something amazing about seeing you do it. So I had one more question. Yeah, You know, when I've been to Charlene used to have house parties at her house and it was called Casa Diva. Mm-hmm. And it, when I went, I had this kind of awakening where I just felt like... This is the ancient temple and we are worshiping the diva and the goddess is kind of coming down. And, you know, my friend Shadi always describes when you did Ray of Light at Casa Diva,
1: he mm. astral projected, he had like an out-of-body
0: experience. And I've, I had, hear I've that, had that. I
1: hear that from people a lot during Ray of Light, specifically last summer. Mm-hmm. And that's the party that we were actually filming wig during. That's right. Um, so if, you're, if you want to see the performances that... We're talking about now you can see wit, you can see this night happening in Wig, but we couldn't afford they couldn't afford any of the songs because the share song that I do yeah. at the end of the movie was too expensive. But I did Ray of Light that night and I hear from a lot of people about how a portal opened and that honestly had nothing to do with me. And I don't even remember doing that song, honestly, because the numbers that I prepared for that night, I had performed and I did Stranger in My House, if you remember. okay, I did Stranger in My House, which is one of my favorite songs. All of the numbers that I chose for that night had something to do with being at home. Um, because we were filming the movie, I wanted to, like, drive home that this, uh, this like, ritual space that we were creating was happening in our home. So I did Legend in My Living Room by Annie Lennox and um, uh, Black Jesus by Lady Gaga. Yes. And also there's a stranger in my house that uh, the Thunderpuss remix, which was a gay uh, dance floor track in the 90s. And then Anthony, who is one of my, uh, DJ Decap, who's one of my favorite DJs who I work with in Brooklyn, he and I work together so much that he knows what to play to set me off. So Ray of Light was completely unplanned. Do you feel like when that happens, I mean, do you feel like I don't want to say the goddess but do you feel
0: something come through you do you feel a presence in
1: this specific instance I did just because my memory of the number it fails me like I don't remember yeah. doing that song so I think it was definitely like a weird shamania time moment um where um the the energy in the room definitely um, spiraled upward and outward to the heavens in a way that it does not often when yeah. I perform, um, and I've just and I just know that because so many people have given me that response, and because I li- I remember it so little doing that number. Um, but also, you know, it was, I was so hyped because the shows had been so fucking, that's the thing about when we did shows at my house at Casa Diva, which it's
0: jam packed with gays. Yeah, They clear an aisle in the middle of the floor. There's no stage and the Queens just kind of walk down and everyone is just fucking supplicating. I mean, I was barely had consumed any, anything and I was really I felt like I was out of my mind and I felt like, Oh, I had forgotten. I had forgotten this like past life thing that I'm supposed to be doing as a queer person, which is being a prince at your temple. Thank you so
1: much. Yeah. I, that was, uh, I valued that space so much. We just moved out of Casa Diva, um, because it became unsustainable and it's a gentrifying neighborhood. Um, but that's something that I cherished so much. It was creating a ritual space that, that people could probably feel and yeah. Um, I actually, um, did the very first show we did at Casa Diva was New Year's 2016. And I did the number that I did at the wig premiere this past week, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds Amazing. by Natalie Cole. Amazing. And that was the first time that I felt there were faggots beating the walls, yes. the walls were sweating and pe- and I just felt percussion from the walls and the floor. And I knew that I had everyone in that room living. And that is what a great church experience is. is like everyone having an experience of transcendence and that. decontextualizing it and putting it in the wig premiere made me realize that was because this was a movie screening. Like we had just watched a film and everyone was seated and there was a, a sense of circumstance that brought upon everyone staying calm for the performance. And it was a lot harder for me to get through that number because of that, even though I was wearing Diego Montoya, honey, you know, Um, the number went very well and I'm very thankful for the experience. And, and like I was saying before, um, like it was a surreal night for me, but it made me realize how much I value my ritual space that I can create and like hope to create in the future with drag because um, it, Gives me so much life also like people talk about um, like how uh, I like th- I brought out this it's it, you know it wasn't it wasn't really about me it gave me just as much life as it gave the audience you know oh. like it wasn't as much as like I was the one holding that space and performing like the experience for me was um, you know as surreal and as like um, out of body as everyone like tells me that they experienced at the house. So thank you for that.
0: So actually, that's a pretty good place to end things. So um, Charlie and I just want to say thank you for being our our goddess and our, our living diva.
1: Thank you so much for including me in your expansion.
0: Yes, and, bitch.
1: Um, may we all thrive and be there for each other. Yeah. At the fucking top, honey.
0: We no. We will. We <laughs> will see you at the temple. Loves um, it. Wig premieres June eighteenth on HBO. Bushwig returns to Brooklyn on the weekend of September 7th. You can follow Charlene at Charlene Incarnate, and you need to do that. Thank you. Talk to you guys later.